Listening to the Gods to Ghost Volleyball Podcast. I'm your host, Scott Bemke. Our podcast today features part one of our three part interview with Andy Fishburn. Over his beach career, Andy won 21 Opens, including the 1980 Laguna Beach Open, as well as the 1980 Beach Volleyball World Championships held at Redondo Beach, both alongside partner Dane Selznick. In addition, Andy was inducted into the California Beach Volleyball Association Hall of Fame in 2003. Let's get started with part one with Andy Fishburn. Hey, Andy Fishburn. Let's start from the very beginning here, pal. Share with uh, with us your early background in, in terms of, you know, where you grew up, what sports you competed in, and then how you ultimately got started in the game of volleyball. Okay, um, I'll back up quite a bit, actually. My, one of the few things that I've known about me and my family is that we are fourth-generation Los Angeles. Actually, on both sides of the family are fourth-generation Los Angeles, my mother's side and my father's side. And my kids are fifth-generation Los Angeles. Wow. So that's pretty unusual. And it's kind of significant with volleyball in a, in a kind of a funny way but let me just say that the commitment to Los Angeles over many many years kind of brought me up on the sand I, I, I was born in the sand I used to tell Dane Celtic I was born in the sand he said well so was I <laughs> and so we have this affinity for the beach and all that but I had a very protective I guess sheltered upbringing really I was raised in um, Pacific Palisades an affluent area near State Beach. Sure. And um, moved to Westwood after when I was seven years old. And I was one of these kids that was just frenetic energy. I, I'd drive my parents crazy. I was always had a ball or <laughs> here and there and setting traps for my mother and <laughs> all kinds of funny things like that. But um, I would say that I was kind of being groomed a little bit by my parents for some kind of a sport because I was driving them crazy. And tennis was tennis was a sport that I really had an affinity with at a young age. And I played junior, the junior tennis circuit and went up and down the California circuit and played a number of different players that are active today. But it was a very lonely sport in that it was just you. And volleyball which I'll get into a little bit later, volleyball had this special affinity. You had your partner. Mm -hmm. And you could share your game with your partner and made it a lot more sort of fun. Um, But back to the family thing, because there's a tie here. My dad's side of the family 
we're all bankers going back the four generations I was talking about sure and uh, very well respected in the banking industry uh, he was actually co-chairman of Bank of America my great grandfather and there's actually a Fishburne Avenue in LA oh which, wow um, do you know it's kind of his special touch on the business politics in downtown LA my mother's side had very, very unique tie to Hollywood. Her father, my grandfather's name was Fred Niblow, and he was a very famous silent movie director. Wow. He directed the original Ben-Hur. He directed the original, these are all silent movie films. It was back in the the 20s. Sure. He did the original Blood and Sand with Rudolph Valentino. He directed the original Zorro. And, um, he did direct the original Three Musketeers, and he was one of the founders of the the society about the Motion Picture Academy. Actually, now it's been rebuilt, and it's from near Fairfax downtown LA. Sure, I've seen it. And uh, he was one of the founders of that. He was also one of the founders responsible for Beverly Hills being a separate city and not being absorbed into Los Angeles. And he actually has a statue the corner of Beverly and Olympic. But what's significant about that is, is that he lived in Beverly Hills and at that time, vacation was going to the beach. And Santa Monica was just a little coastal town. It hadn't grown yet. Right. So the state it is today, you know, today is just absolute madness how crowded it is. But people would go to the beach and there was the concept of the beach club, which basically was a swimming club. And there were Several of them up and down what's called the Gold Coast in Santa Monica, as well as some very large mansion-like houses that belong to Hollywood, you know, the Hollywood elite. So my mother, who was born in Beverly Hills, which is really strange because there's no hospitals in Beverly Hills, it turned out she was born in her in her room, in her bedroom, in her house. And trick was is that. Volleyball, timing-wise, had been invented back east, six-man indoor, like over 100 years ago. It was very popular, and the six-man made its way across the United States and hit, hit the beaches of Santa Monica. And it was very, very popular, except the problem with it, it was all six-man. And getting 12 guys together on a regular basis to play volleyball is not an easy task. No, it's not. So there was a guy named Paul Johnson who was actually one of the early members of our beach club who said, you know, why, why are we waiting around all the time for all these guys to show up? Let's just play doubles. And I think to date he is credited with coming, coming up, kind of originating the, the concept of two-man beach volleyball. And he was a member of our beach club back way back in the 30s and 40s. And there was a couple other guys that... Well, a guy named Les Meisenheimer, who was a fabulous setter in the day. And, and these are guys that are legends in their own right, but probably not heard of much. They're going way back. This is pre-Selznick and Lang and Von Hagen. So there's there's quite a history there. What happened to me as I kind of evolved was that I picked up volleyball as an outlet to tennis. It was like my fun thing to do without the seriousness of tennis going on. So I, at our beach club, it had its own history of volleyball. There were a lot of good players. They weren't necessarily open caliber, but they were. They would enter opens. Uh, 
Dennis Dugan and John Taylor are certainly the case in point. And mm-hmm. they, these are kind of my mentors. I don't really say I have anybody in particular that I was emulating my skills after. There's a guy named John Meek. I don't know if you've come across John Meek. I've heard the name before. Yeah, John was an active open player, and he was kind of in his in sort of the sunset of his game, and he saw me coming up through the ranks at the beach club. And he was one of the few guys I knew who played volleyball outside the beach club. Like I said, I was such a, I was such a sheltered upbringing. I thought the beach club was the world. But little did I know that right next door was State Beach with the most dynamic, you know, happening beach volleyball in the world. And John Meek said to me, he said, you know, maybe we'll introduce you to this game. Let's enter a tournament. And he knew what he was talking about. He played in a lot of tournaments. So he entered us in the Laguna Open. How old the, were you? I was, he said I was 22. Okay. I was just out of college and um, playing volleyball on a regular basis at the beach club and kind of had attained the level that was the maximum level at the beach club at the time. So I couldn't go anywhere but up by going to State Beach and experimenting with that scene. So John Meek set us up for a tournament. And I should mention that I kind of sheepishly wandered over to State Beach, <laughs> coming out from under my umbrella, literally, at the beach club, to see what the, what the scene was like. And remember, the beach club is, they call it elitist, but it's just, it's kind of a high-end, luxurious gathering place. It had, you know, Fancy equipment to lie on. You had, you know, locker rooms and the volleyball courts or two volleyball courts. It's actually kind of an arena at the beach club. It's very, very central to, to kind of the, the culture of the club. So volleyball was, it really was a volleyball, volleyball club. And it had all kinds of amenities. Believe me, you paid for them. It wasn't like they were all thrown in. You paid for it. Mm-hmm. So, I want, like I said, I wandered over and kind of sat nearby the courts. I didn't barge up and said, you know, who's going to play with me? Or I kind of watched for a while. And there were some really colorful characters that could have been very intimidating at first. There was, um, I don't know if you ever heard of Daryl Rucco. Yeah, I he heard he could really lay into the ball. He was very dominant on the game and very aggressive and... <laughs> there was, uh, let's see, Gary Hooper, who is, you know, could be called intimidating in a lot of different ways. Very strong, you know, muscular guy and very vocal. And I'm watching all this from the sidelines, going, how am I going to fit into this crowd? <laughs> I'm not sure. I. And there was Mike, Mike Storman Norman. Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, well aware of him. <laughs> I heard he killed people with his hands, you know? It's like, what am I getting myself into? But I took some more time, and I was watching the actual game. And a calm came over me, because I, I saw these guys who were sort of the top rung in their sport. And I thought, you know what? I think I can do that. I don't know how I'm going to partner up. I don't know how I'm going to make this happen, but I think I can do that. 
And I went back to John Meek and I said, okay, I'll, let's play the Lagoon Open. And Laguna, in its own right, is just a magnificent setting. And it has four courts that were just central to the whole town and flooded with people and a great tradition. Mm-hmm. So our first round, as I recall, was our first round. We played against Hooper and Zulich. And John Meek knew them. I didn't really know them. I knew Hooper a little bit from State Beach, but in Zulich, I didn't know at all. And they came out very confident, you know, the usual big warm-up, yep. pounding balls and intimidation factor. And I just, I had kind of my, my own sense of confidence that my game could compete with any of their games. So John, who's a very uh, disciplined player, and I, we just didn't make any mistakes. And we came on, and we scoring points, and all of a sudden I realized, God, we can win this game. And Hooper and Zulich were getting increasingly frustrated, banging balls, and we just kept our calm. And we eventually won the game. I don't remember what the score was. We won it, and they were fourth seed in the tournament. And I go, oh, my God, we just took, took out the fourth seed. <laughs> Who is this Fishburne kid? You know, I could hear people. And there was another match. I'm pretty sure it was the same tournament that Vogelsang was playing with Steve Obradovich. Oh, wow. That, that's and, a colorful uh, team. Very colorful team. A crazy team. <laughs> and I'm playing with John Meek also. I'm pretty sure it's the same tournament. Maybe it's the second or third round. And in the middle of the match, it's a pretty close match, I hit a ball, and Vogie sticks his arm out and kind of digs it up, and the ball goes back behind the back rope up their side. OB runs it down, barely gets to it, and he pops up and he's even further away from the court. And you got to understand, there's a lot of people around. So yep. among people lying around watching the game. And, and so the ball was so far away, you couldn't believe that Vogie would even try for it. And he does this Tarzan yell <laughs> as he's running, and literally a full Tarzan yell, and whips his body around and connects with this ball. And I've never, ever seen a ball fly so far with one hit. And it came all the way back to our side. And meanwhile, OB and Bogey are lying in the sand, just exhausted. You know, out of it. And we just passed and said it and digged it. <laughs> it was like a piece of cake. And that was that. And they were just, <laughs> we were all just laughing and writhing in the sand because it was the most amazing shot. It's funny you bring that up to me, Andy, because I talked to uh, Vogie the other night. And he, you know how <laughs> you, you can always have to take him with a grain of salt whether to believe what he's saying or not. But he said, ask Fisher, and if he remembers that time I got that ball that was a half mile away from <laughs> behind the court at Laguna. And sure enough, he, he was telling the truth. So this, that's classic. <laughs> it was an absolutely remarkable shot. So there I was, you know, kind of in all the good players that were, you know, competitive at the time played in the Lagoon Open. And I think that was kind of my introduction to the volleyball community at large. They want to know who I was and what, what my credentials were and was like, could I be a good partner and all that kind of stuff. Right. 
So I, I was able to meld into the state beach culture and started playing with all the local guys. Mm-hmm. You, know, you, you traded around with different partners, and one of the guys that became became my partner was Fred Sturm, who I think um, most people are pretty familiar with. He became the Stanford head coach, men's coach, and mm-hmm. he was a very disciplined, mechanical player. And I think he kind of wanted to take me under his arm, but I was I was a completely self-taught, um, not particularly disciplined player. I had invent shots, a couple of all this strange stuff. <laughs> and he and I were like yin and yang, but we made a good team together mentally. He was always there to help me out, and I gave him good sets. He <laughs> was just like, we came in a, a, a close team, and I guess it was 1978 that we pretty much, I wouldn't say dominated, but we were in virtually every final on the circuit. And in 77, we kind of broke in in the World Championships at State Beach, playing Mingus and Marlowe in the finals in a very closely contested World Championship match. And that, again, put me on the radar screen for all these guys at State Beach because that's where it was being played. Right. So that's how I kind of got broken in. It is a, um, I didn't quit tennis. I still played a lot of tennis. I played the junior circuit. And a good friend of mine at the beach club, a guy named Craig Archer, he and I kind of formed a duo that played at the beach club. We were sort of the beach club champs. And we'd take the beach club towels and tear them apart and make headbands out of it. (laughs) They lost a lot of their towels because we would, France ran with all these headbands. But Craig got me, um, helped me get a job that I could do. Because you always wonder how do people afford playing beach volleyball? Right. Well, I didn't have the fortune of family money and, and I had to get a job. So he turned me on to a tennis job, being the tennis pro and running a tennis shop at Mountain Gate Country Club, a big country club nearby in LA. And the hours were from four in the afternoon till 11 at night. And it was absolutely ideal because your, your practice time at the beach was like 10 in the morning till two or three in the afternoon. So I was a really busy guy, but the way it worked was Saturday and Sunday were tournaments. Monday was a rest day. Tuesday was a full throttle workout day. Wednesday the same. Thursday the same, Friday off, resting for the tournament. And in the meantime, I was able to work from 4 to 11, five days a week, teaching. I wasn't teaching advanced, I was teaching mostly beginners. Sure. And not even tennis shop. So that kind of schedule worked for me. And I was able to spend the adequate amount of time practicing. So that's kind of, kind of how I got into the beach volleyball thing and became I just loved the game the beach club had three sports where you really participated in one was beach volleyball another was paddle tennis which was invented in Venice and I played a lot of paddle tennis and surfing you go out and surf right in front of the beach club so I was just a very thankfully I had all that because I had extraneous energy that just needed to be tamed <laughs> <laughs> otherwise you'd be still setting traps for your poor mother 
Yes, I would. <laughs> I used to I used to jump in the water and roll in the roll in the dry sand and cover my body with sand and go to my mom and go, you know, man from sand, man from sand. <laughs> strange thing, and I used, to, I used to make booby traps out of the sand. I'd dig a hole and put a towel over it and then disguise it with sand. Sure. And people walking along would step on it, unbeknownst to them, and it was not a very nice thing to do, but it was part of it. Good thing you didn't have a smartphone back then. You would have been all over TikTok with all the video footage of the stuff you were pulling. There's a lot of stuff I could have probably gotten in trouble for. Right, right. Well, that's... But the beach, club, the beach club was my second home. It was volleyball-based. It had a tremendous volleyball culture. They started a tournament called the Calcutta, which maybe Condor talked to you about, but it's a... It's a July 4th weekend extravaganza of volleyball where teams were um, handicapped so they all were theoretically equal and you'd buy your team and ultimately you'd get a piece of the pie um, at the end. So what that was it a, it was four on four where they basically put like an A player with a double A with a, B, a you know a, a novice or how, however that works or correct. Correct. Okay, and it was like a blind draw, right? You just, you know, you took one from this pool, one Correct. from that pool. How cool! And it became a very popular thing. And, and you know, we're not supposed to talk about prize money because it's a private club, and you don't want to expose your club to things. But <laughs> it was definitely a prize money game. And there were a couple of years where the purse actually was larger than the professional tour. <laughs> And I remember some of the guys hearing about that from state, and they came over to watch some of the matches at the beach club. And so the beach club became known, especially through that Calcutta tournament, as a you know, real serious icon, if you will, for volleyball, which is very cool. Yeah. I lived down there. I mean, I, now, that being said, my parents were pretty sharp about being a good student and all that, and they said, fine, you go down to the beach club, but you have to spend four hours every morning either doing chores or reading or some combination thereof and then you can go down to the beach wow. so I would get up early and mow the lawn and you know, pick weeds and read books and and when 12 noon came around I was ready to go you were out the door at 1159 <laughs> yeah so it was you know, it's always been an incredibly attractive thing. The reason I mentioned my grandfather, my mother's side, is back in the 1920s, he had his family join the Beach Club. I don't think they were charter members, but they were members in the late 1920s. Mm-hmm. It's almost 100 years ago now. And he raised my mom down there. And then when he passed away, she got the membership. And my sister and I were raised down there, if you will. And my mom and dad moved out of L.A. I got the membership. And so I've been, you know, more or less going down to the beach club for over 60 years. How nice. But it was not, never looking back. It's just a great, it's just a great experience. Yeah, and plus all those members there over the over the years. I mean, you remember seeing uh, John Taylor and his brother uh, Frank Taylor there and in the Condor yeah. and all these guys? <laughs> There's kind of this unique, multi-generational aspect of the beach club. I mean, mm-hmm. you could be a young kid 
budding to get better at the sport. And you might play with an old guy who's 60 years old who's a veteran. And he mm-hmm. makes, all, makes a match. Four man became the game because two man was so um, tied up the courts too much. We needed more room for more players. So it's just the opposite of Paul Johnson. Now we had to accommodate more people. Mm-hmm. Because the court was getting so darn popular that we'd have um, both courts full, and you'd work up to the first court by winning the game in the second court. There were guys waiting to play in the second court. Just very, very popular. I, I'm not sure about the Outrigger Canoe Club in Hawaii, whether it originated beach volleyball before it did in Santa Monica. But Santa Monica, because of the because of the swimming clubs concept, it took off very strong. And then, of course, the public beaches picked it up. And the whole California beach circuit was formed, and and most of that is where the guys were kind of spawned as far as players go, because you wanted to get your A and you wanted to get your double A, and your triple A was like an open. And so there really was some pretty neat and nostalgic structures in tournaments and how it was all organized. It was, hey, that guy's got an A. Well, he's going <laughs> to you kind of rate everybody by their volleyball status, right? Which is which is kind of cool. Yeah, I heard back then it was really a, uh, an achievement to earn one. You know, to earn to go to work your way up through the rankings and and get to that level because you know somewhere along the line you're going to have to get like a fourth place finish and you're going to have to knock off some of the people that you idolized and or looked up to you and were much higher seed so you know I remember hearing from Fred Zulich when he played down in Ocean Beach or Mission Beach in San Diego and he just when when Von Higgins uh, uh, Dane Holtzman <laughs> turned Hari Krishna and Fred's partner didn't show up and George Stepanoff, uh, being the class act he is, played matchmaker and had uh, Von Hagen play with Fred. <laughs> and uh, Fred ended up, they ended up getting, a, I believe, a, a second or a third that place finished that weekend. And uh, he earned his AAA, and it was like he was on it. He felt like he won the tournament, you know, uh, getting that ranking. So I can only right. imagine. Uh, it must have been pretty similar for all you guys, huh? Yeah, I, my earning, my... Triple A was kind of a bizarre deal. I was down in the uh, uh, Mission Beach Open, and I played with the Big E, who you may have heard of. Eric Macias, Eric, right? Eric Macias. And I was playing with different partners at the time. This is like in mid seventies. And Eric said, "Why don't you play with me?" It was on me to play with him. And I said, "Okay, what the heck?" So we played in this tournament, and we ended up winning it. Played against a guy Pomeroy and Jensen. And I, and I played out of my mind. I played out of my mind, and I was so ecstatic because we had earned our AAA that I remember <laughs> looking up with a couple buddies. They did the driving, and I went through two six packs <laughs> <laughs> in the car. I was so excited about celebrating this victory. And Biggie was a character. I mean, he's a huge dude. <clears throat> if he hit a ball, he'd land and he'd bounce like he, you know. He was on the moon or something. He's a very strange player. Yeah, I heard he was um, a, a volatile guy, and uh, I think he played in some of those six-man events and um, yeah. at the Manhattan Six Man, and he had some really good. Uh, he he was a, the horse that got fed by Sato and the rest of those guys one year uh, when when they won at uh, 
you just I, never knew what you were getting with him off the court. I believe he, he was murdered later in life, was he not, in Costa Rica? I had heard that. It's really sad. He yeah. and I had a kind of special relationship. We mutual respect. But, God, we'd be playing matches and people would be harassing him on the sideline. He was not the most popular fellow in the world. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and from what I heard, he was... Uh, that's not a real wise move to make because he's he's been known to haul off and uh, let and, let it fly. Yeah, and he's not afraid <laughs> to throw fists. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but anyway, that's how I got my AAA, and, and that you know propelled me more confidence and in getting into, into these open tournaments and being more competitive. And so much of it is, um, and we can talk some more about this, but so much of it is zero is your mental it has to do with absolutely believing you can win and being used to winning and getting in a position to win it's a it's a very competitive environment but that's the nature of the beast sure absolutely so um i just out of curiosity um i just got a text from bogey and he said ask fishburn what kind of beer he was drinking in the back seat of that car <laughs> was it Olympia? Remember the Olympia from? It was Coors. Coors, okay. Oh my goodness, yeah. So yeah, just like um, Johnny Lawrence. I don't know if you watch the show Cobra Kai, but he's always throwing back those Coors banquet beers. I think he's trying to channel Andy Fishburne on that show now. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, such fond memories of that era, breaking into that echelon. Because the big picture was people were so focused on the California lifestyle and mm-hmm. they put it on a pedestal and people wanted to be wanted a bite of that action. Sponsors wanted to show off their trunks and all the different opportunities available to to make side money as endorsements. So that that was a really exciting time. Well, I always picture you in those Burmese. Wasn't that what yeah, you were- <laughs> Burmese was great. I used to go down to the Burmese shop at a warehouse. I can't remember where it was, in South Bay somewhere. And um, they would have just rolls of material. And I would, they said, they said pick out whatever you want, and we'll make, make the trunks for you. <laughs> that was like the lottery. 10 or 12 different patterns. And it was just in a, you know, raw state. And sure enough, two days from there, I get in the delivered 10 trunks. And they were a great, they were a great sponsor. I, the other sponsor I really enjoyed was Hobie. Mm-hmm. Hobie Sports and Hobie Alter, you know, was a genius inventor in so many ways. Through this huge party, and I got invited. And I'll never forget what a scene it was. All the people that were into the beach and sailing and surfing, and it was such a California lifestyle thing. It was really, really fun. Yeah, that was just such a neat time. I mean, I always see the photos and in like, you know, John Lee's been real nice and sent me, you know, when he was um, one of the the writers and journalists with like Volleyball Magazine, you know, oh, back yeah. in that time period. And he sent me some of those older ones that he has a couple extras of and uh, just thumbing through that and looking at it. And just like you mentioned, you know, the, the clothes that you guys were wearing and then the, the yeah. crowds around the court, you know, where it's just, you literally couldn't step a foot back or to the sideline without stepping on people. It's like you guys were hurtling over the, the fans and beach chairs and umbrellas. And it was just a, just a, was a beautiful there was a thing. Made, there was a movie made that caught a pretty good 
glimpse of that whole subculture was called Just Another California Day. Oh, I've seen some of that footage of uh, of you guys from that, I think, on YouTube. Yeah, what what about that? I've always wanted it's to a, ask you and Dane. Uh, Terry Sprague, who was an old-time Manhattan Beach um, fan, not necessarily a player, but a fan, put together this movie with some great background music. And it shows the atmosphere, it captures the atmosphere of the crowd so well. You know, right, and they're right around the fringe of the court, and they're yelling and screaming and lounging and whatever else you want, you know, hurling obscenities. And it was just a very vivacious scene. And the sport itself was able to manage it. It was a fun sport to watch. Somebody, some, someone hammering a spike and the dig and skyball serves and all, every aspect of the game was so magnified but it deserved to be magnified there's some great skills that were involved out there absolutely uh, you know the, speaking of uh, those movies uh, I was I wanted to ask you um, Bill and Wally aka Blowfish um, yeah. he had mentioned to me that I need to track down a film called uh, I believe Round Thunder and it was somebody that maybe you were a member with at the beach club from what he remembers that made it and it features a lot of footage of like you and some other pe folks maybe from Laguna or something off the top of your head do you recall anything about well, that? There was, a, there was a guy there was, uh, um, this may be inaccurate but there was a guy named Michael Ayers who was a filmmaker, budding filmmaker and he was going to make a movie called Round Thunder but ultimately, the prize that he came up with, the movie was named One in the Sun. Ah, okay. Yep, that's the other one I think I might have seen on YouTube then. Yeah, and it was a tremendous summary of the 1979 World Championships, which was a crazy match for, for Dan and I and Sinjin and Karch, which we can get into. But um, that's the movie I remember called One in the Sun. And it really did a good job capturing the... the lifestyle and all that as did just another california day awesome so you're thinking maybe that he changed the name from uh round thunder to one in the sun for that for that then maybe it think, sounds like I think, the, think, I think ultimately the name was one in the sun okay that makes sense then because i i'll uh, i'll have to share that with bill and track that down that's awesome yeah. So now um, you first started playing in those opens. Were there any particular players um, coming up through the ranks as a as a young guy that you kind of enjoyed watching play or looked up to uh, in any sense or fashion? Well, I certainly was impressed overall with the caliber of play. I'm talking about State Beach, and you, got, you know, I'm sure you understand there was State Beach and there was Serena Beach. And there are two kind of different camps of players. Some of them crossed and went back and forth. And there was a little bit of a competitive thing between the two beaches. I was a safe beach lover. I always thought safe beach was kind of the better place to be. But Mingus loved Sereno. And there was a tremendous amount of uh, cross-pollination between the two. But you see all the guys that became eligible partners but when it came down to it, it's the part point is, is that between those two camps, there were a lot of players that kind of floated and changed partners trying to find the right match because ultimately the, the doubles match formed 
a, um, a, a duo that didn't have any real weaknesses. But you had to find the right partner to do that. Everyone had a little bit different proclivities. So Fred sort of sought me out to be a partner. Like I said, I played with him most of 78 and part of 79. And Dane was there too. Dane, being kind of my immediate peer, was very much a, a fan of us getting together to play. And I, and I ultimately decided that was probably a good idea because Fred and I had played quite a bit. Fred got the job at Stanford mm-hmm. as head coach. And he had a, kind of another agenda going on. And it became kind of time to hook up with someone else. One of, the, one of the hard conflicts that I remember dealing with was loyalty to your partner versus finding the best combination and sticking with it. Right. So, you know, Dane and I were a good combination because I would block of the net. He'd be using terrific quickness to run down spikes and shots. But I wouldn't say that there were that many guys that I was dying to play with that, didn't, that I didn't. There certainly was a lot of talent. And, that, and you know, I, I can't tell you how incredibly fun the scene was at State Beach. I mean, I was used to this sheltered beach club where everyone was very prim and proper and mm-hmm. you know, not not in a bad way, but just more, more conservative. State Beach had the greatest talent show as far as women is concerned. The bathing suits and they would play, you know, they'd play volleyball themselves in a very, very good way. And guys drinking beers, there's guys coming in from surfing, there's guys in the parking lot getting stoned, there's fantastic volleyball going on all around you in this beautiful blue sky, awesome weather. You know, it's just, <laughs> couldn't beat it. Sign me up. It's just unbelievable. And the people generally off the court were very nice. I never had any bad experiences off the court. But on court, as you as you know, in the competitive arena, that's when the, you know, stuff really shakes out. Because some people are very good in competitive situations and some people aren't. And they defeat themselves. And I, I was raised by my parents to be a very good sport, but also to I was a terrible sport when I was young. I used to, in tennis, I used to throw my racket and get so upset when I wasn't playing well that my parents actually took my racket away and I wasn't able to play tennis. <laughs> and it was, it was harsh because it, it was such a big outlet for me. But my, my competitive instincts told me, take that energy and fold it back in and use it for you as opposed to against you. It's remarkable how many matches can be won by just having that one little edge. Maybe two maybe worth two or three points a game. Taking that negative vibe and turning it into a positive vibe. And it really met with results. So I I think that was part of the strengths that I was able to offer was a mental game that was solid. Not riddled with holes or or insecurity, or fear of losing, or whatever else. Yeah, by all accounts, everyone said when you played on that court, you were just such a smooth player, and um, 
you know, and then you also had some of those uncanny, unorthodox type things that you could do, like, you know, which we'll get to with your, your, the Fishburne flipper and make a perfect set off of it or hit the ball over the net with it. It was almost like, uh, you know, you mentioned earlier how as a uh, athlete, you kind of, you know, were self-taught and sometimes it's like musicians like Eddie Van Halen who just sat in his bedroom and learned how to play the guitar his own way and he reinvented right. how to play it. So it's sometimes... I wouldn't recommend, I wouldn't th- recommend anybody learn beach volleyball how I play it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm pretty unorthodox. I like to think of myself as being an innovator. I've always thought there's a shot for every set. There's a shot for every set. There is it's a good set or a bad set. There's always a place to put the ball where no one's going to be. So I was really into developing developing a, a shot and placement that would drive, drive the opposition crazy. And there, there truly is a touch involved with every shot, but you play enough and you master it. The other thing I wanted to say was that trip to that competitive field I'm just coming out with some of these things as I, as I think about them, but was studying the opposition. I don't think these days people people are more in the gym and trying to be physically strong, and that's that's all fine and dandy, but I, I, I'm amazed how many people didn't really have a strategy, even at a high level, of who to serve or what weaknesses to go after. You would learn, I, I would learn every single player in the open level and learn every single player's weakness and where to, where to kind of attack. And that's worth its weight in gold as far as being competitive. So you might be playing a guy who's is a great hitter, but his partner is just a mediocre setter. And who do you serve? Well, the mediocre setter guy might throw it two or three times a game and there's three points. And so that's a lot. So there's always this strategy of analyzing your opposition and being being aware of what what their pros and what their cons are and the good teams you couldn't find any weaknesses they're they're the ones that were the toughest because you could you had to kind of guess who to serve and who to make shots to and, and the like because it, there weren't any holes and then you had to wait it was a war of attrition and mental toughness to see who was going to break or make mistakes first right and there's another factor which very few people talk about, and this the beach club was this, like I mentioned, was this little nirvana with this idyllic court, two courts that they played on, and and it was it was protected from the wind. What people don't realize is the wind is a huge factor in outdoor volleyball, obviously, and there are guys who just couldn't couldn't master the skills in the wind and. That's a big, big factor that people needed to practice in the wind, and they wouldn't want to do that. They'd go down in the morning when it wasn't windy. The wind would come up in the afternoon. That's when you should be practicing some of those games because the wind is a dead. I, I always hated the wind because it ruined surfing waves. It ruined tennis lobs. It ruined all kinds of <laughs> It ruined uh, passes and sets yeah. uh, on the court when it came to playing. Yeah, I'm a, I was with you on that one. This concludes part one of our interview with Andy Fishburn. Thanks for tuning in for it. Before I let you go, I want to quickly give thanks to the musicians that we use for our podcast. The opening track is from the band Sponge. 
The title of the song is Rainin' off the album Rotting Pinata. The closing track that you'll hear shortly is from the band Magna Carta Cartel out of Sweden. The song title is That It's Already Too Late off the album Good Morning Restrained. If you get a chance, please make sure to visit our website dedicated to the history of the sport, and that is www.gods2ghosts.com. Thank you.